What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It's Monday, June 20th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we are about to air my interview with Nick Shalitz of the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Before we do that, today's episode is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valaalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. And with that, we're going to get right into the interview. Today on TPT, we are joined by Nick Shalitz. Nick is a zone engineer for the Natural Resources Conservation Service. Nick's team covers 52 counties in north central Texas. The NRCS is within the USDA and works with farmers and ranchers to provide their technical expertise needed to improve conservation efforts on their land. Nick Shalitz, welcome to the planet today. Thanks, Matt. Excited to be here. Excited to have you on. So what first got you interested in environmentalism and sustainability? You know, funny enough, it was kind of a roundabout way. Um, I enjoyed being outside and camping a lot when I was a kid, but I was absolutely one of those people that grew up like Legos and Lincoln logs and that kind of stuff. So I always thought I wanted to build buildings. Um, I started looking at colleges for architecture and I also happen to be quite a bit of a uh, nerdy math and science guy. I toured a couple of schools for architecture and they, you know, I was asking them about how like, calculus credits in high school were going to transfer in and like biology and all this stuff. And they were like, "Ah, honestly, architecture is, you know, a lot more of an art degree than a math and science degree. So I Googled the next closest thing to architecture and it was civil engineering. Mm -hmm. So I went to school for civil engineering and civil engineering has five major disciplines, one of which is environmental engineering. Water resources is another one of those. And once I got to school, for civil engineering i quickly figured out the structural engineering buildings that stuff probably my least favorite part part of civil engineering mm-hmm. and i absolutely fell in love with environmental and water resources and here i am awesome so what do you actually do as a zone engineer for the nrcs so uh, there's seven soon to be six field engineers that work underneath me unfortunately we're losing one to alaska wow but um yeah he's pretty excited about yeah, it that's, um, that's a cool place to go help but, <laughs> can't help but be a little bit jealous um but basically yeah there's, so there's a group of field engineers underneath me and um the field engineers handle the day-to-day kind of 
stuff. Essentially, USDA NRCS is a team of nothing but technical expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, so we employ agronomists, biologists, engineers, soil scientists, rangeland management specialists, and then our general, the bulk of our positions are called soil conservationists. Soil conservationists are kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. And the field engineers and myself included as a zone engineer, what we call technical support staff. So anytime our soil conservationist goes out to a ranch or a farm and there's a major problem that's causing, you know, environmental degradation or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. if there's advanced level engineering expertise needed that's where our field engineers and myself come in to assist gotcha so i know that when i talk to a lot of my friends who have similar degrees to mine or just people involved in you know the public environmental sphere a lot of people are looking to get into government work and a lot of people don't really know how to get into that so do you have any tips for someone who's kind of in that position that says you know i would love to work for the usda or maybe even the nrcs how'd, how'd you get your start there you know once again kind of straight backwards into it <laughs> um environmental engineering water resources engineering a lot of people don't realize that the core of environmental in- engineering what the industry is is drinking water and wastewater treatment so that is the bread and butter of environmental engineering, which is awesome. It needs to be done. But when you're talking about like trying to save the planet, a factory that is treating human wastewater is not really what you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Right. People want to do like habitat restoration, all that kind of stuff. Those jobs are really hard to find. Um, unfortunately, society doesn't place a huge emphasis on that being profitable, which is why we end up in the public sector. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're working for the government because the government are the only people that put enough emphasis on it to actually pay someone to do it typically. Um, so I had a job lined up as an intern for a consulting firm in Toledo, Ohio that did, you know, general wastewater treatment, a little bit of brownfield development and that sort of stuff. And the week before finals, my sophomore year of college, um, the company contacted me and I had interviewed with the Columbus office, but was supposed to be put in the Toledo office. The Columbus office called me two weeks before the semester was over and was like, Hey, so we forgot to tell the Toledo office that they needed to hold a spot for you. And we didn't hold a spot in the Columbus office because you were supposed to be there. So like, you're kind of out of luck. Jeez. And like, that was it. It was over. So I went to my academic advisor and was like, what do I do? And her exact words were, well, the federal government hires significantly slower and later than everybody else. So I would get on USA jobs and start looking. And that's basically what happened. I got on USA jobs and I applied for NRCS, Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Reclamation, like surface mine restoration agency, like anything you can imagine all over the country. I applied for positions on USA jobs and an HR representative in Montana with the NRCS called me back and was like, will you actually move to Montana? I was like, is it a paying internship? He said, yep. I was like, all right, cool. And I was there by Memorial day. Awesome. And you know, honestly, it, it helps to know somebody that works for the federal government to get into positions like that. But truthfully, have a great resume 
uh, be ready to talk about yourself and spend as much time as possible looking for jobs on usajobs.gov because every single position that we hire in the federal government, you have to apply on USA jobs. There is no, you can't walk into an office, like interview with a boss and get hired. Yeah. Every, you know, part of equal opportunity and, you know, veteran preferences and all that stuff is every position we hire goes through an HR office in Washington, D.C. So that that's the best way to get in. And it truthfully, it's the only way to get in. Yeah, I feel like the days of just walking into a random office and being yeah. like, here's my resume. Those are yeah. <laughs> those <No>. are gone. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, I want to talk to you a little bit more about conservation of farmland, since that seems to be the main focus of your team. What's something that most listeners might not think of when it comes to conservation of farmland? You know, the, the funny enough, the, the first thing that people might not think of when they think of conservation of farmland is in the United States, our agricultural land, while there is a lot of farmland, there is also huge amounts of rangeland as well. And rangeland is just as important as farmland. Um, the most important thing that people don't realize on farmland is keeping the soil covered is the key. And soil is literally the foundation of all life. Mm -hmm. Without soil, there's, I mean, ocean life would take a major hit and have to adapt, but would remain. But without soil, I mean, there's been plenty of books written that, you know, the key to a civilization or the key to a nation is its soil. As soon as there's no longer the ability to have agriculture in a nation whatsoever, it's a, it's a weak place to live. Yeah. It's interesting. By the time this episode comes out, um, we will have aired one last month where we talked about some of the machinery that's used on farmland today that weighs as much as dinosaurs used to weigh. It's just compacting the soil and forcing yeah. out all of the air, all of the water. It's just so interesting to me how, you know, soil quality is, is very much in the forefront of some people's minds, but to a lot of us, you know, we don't really think of it when it comes to just where is my food coming from, yep. but it's something that's so important to take care of. Cause like you said, it's, it's the bedrock of society. Absolutely. NRCS creates this poster that I love that is a timeline of every event that has happened in the amount of time that it takes one inch of soil to be created and I mm -hmm. want to say, I mean, it starts like pre Mayflower through present day. I mean, it's hundreds of years to create an, an inch of soil. I mean, obviously nat that's occurring naturally. We can speed that up ourselves. Yeah. You know, input organic matter, you know, take very good care of it, keep it covered, add water, all that good stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, soil, the other thing is, is like, if you ever talk to more NRCS people, you'll hear soil. We very rarely say dirt because dirt is mm -hmm. just such a small part of soil. Soil is a, it's an ecosystem, right? So we have the dirt particles, sand, clay, silt. Then we have organic matter. Mm -hmm. Then we have, you know, all of the living organisms that are in our soil. Then there's air as well and water on top of that. So it, it's just this giant collective of who knows what that is all living in this little bit of area that sustains all life on earth. Yeah. It's just one of those things too, where it takes so long to develop, like you said, an inch of soil, but it's something that's so fragile and can be, you know, all of that work can be erased within minutes if not taken care of properly. Oh yeah. And I mean, that's, 
that's one of the big things. You know, I don't know how much you know about the history of the NRCS, but until the mid '90s, our uh, agency was called the Soil Conservation Service, and we are actually a direct result of the Dust Bowl. Gotcha. So the agency was created specifically in response to the Dust Bowl era. Uh, Hugh Hammond Bennett was the found the first chief of the SCS. And in the 30s, as the Dust Bowl just absolutely destroyed prime farmland throughout the United States, he was writing articles mm-hmm. about, you know, cover is important for preserving soil. If there's no roots there, it's just going to blow away. And I mean, there's he, he's got a whole litany of sources and all kinds of other stuff. But that's that's where the NRCS comes from. Once upon I, I want to say. 93, 94, 95 is the year we became the Natural Resources Conservation Service. But up until that point, we were the Soil Conservation Service. Gotcha. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about how uh, the recent push over the past five, 10 years, it seems, for no-till farming, crop rotation, less pesticide use. How has that sort of changed what your team is doing on a day-to-day? So it hasn't because we've been doing all of those things for probably about 40 or 50 years. That is awesome to hear. <laughs> that's that's kind of where our origins are from. So crop rotations, basically crop rotations and leaving, it's called leaving a field fallow, right? So that mm-hmm. means that the crop residue is in the field. It's not plowed under immediately. That in combination with things like farming with the contours instead of against the contours are like the very, very origin of what NRCS, SCS provided as technical expertise to farmers in an effort to conserve soil. So, um, I mean, crop rotations there, you can go into a county field office for the NRCS anywhere and look up a conservation plan from the fifties that will have crop rotations in them. Um, Pesticides is a little bit different. Um, well, truthfully, we don't do much with pesticides. Um, we have a little, we have a little bit of work with that. We do a lot more with herbicides. Um, mm-hmm. And then no-till farming. I mean, majority of the push in the Western United States for no-till farming is directly from NRCS. I worked with the agency in Montana for four and a half years, and in that part of the country where the land is not forgiving as a 30 or 40 inch rainfall place, like most of the East coast or mm-hmm. Texas where I'm at now, um, out there, no-till is the norm. Um, they, they know that their soil can't take the beating that it can in places that have the rainfall input and have the deep topsoil that we have in these non-glaciated places. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I wish I could tell you it's changed a bunch because of that, but honestly, it, it really hasn't at all. The, the biggest change for us has been a shift from only providing technical expertise to being able to provide financial assistance for farmers. And that's really what makes us unique as an agency is we are essentially it in the federal government that is able to provide federal cost share dollars on private land. There are not very many federal agencies authorized to work on private land. Gotcha. Granted, we have to have an in, we have to have an invitation from the landowner, obviously, but we're allowed to, you know, uh, 
our budget comes from a chunk of the farm bill that is set aside to go to farmers and ranchers. We're responsible for administering that. Gotcha. As long as they, you know, reach out first yep. and basically you guys can't just step in and say, Hey, let us help. Right. They need to people, want the help. Uh, people don't take too kindly to like knocking on their door and being like, Hey, I see a bunch of resource concerns in your field. We really need to help you. Can you let us help you? And that's, yeah. I mean, these people are giving life, limb, financial security and everything else to provide food for this country. So like mm-hmm. telling them that they're destroying the field that they make their livelihood on and they care so deeply about is not one, it's not productive Two, it's typically not an intentional thing or not something they're trying to do. And mm-hmm. three, it just gets us nowhere. Yeah. I, it's funny you mentioned that. Cause I was going to say, I feel like farmers are a, a group of people and ranchers as well, where, they just deeply care about their land way more than someone who's just like, Oh yeah, I really try to take care of my lawn because it's my backyard. Like this is their livelihood as well. Yes. So yeah, I'm sure stepping in and being like, Hey, that thing you're doing that you dedicate your entire life to, let's go ahead and change that up a little bit. Wouldn't, wouldn't really go over as well as them reaching out to you. You know, and honestly, a lot of, a lot of what we do is, outreach reassurance and education to show people that have been doing it the same way for generations that they're not going to hurt the land by doing it a different way. So how would you say the NRCS and the farmers and ranchers that the NRCS works with are impacted by climate change already? I don't even know where to begin, honestly, with that. I I wish there was like a simple, small answer, but it, it, there's so much. Um, yeah, NRCS administers a few programs that are called disaster programs. Basically, it is an opportunity to help farmers and ranchers recover after a natural disaster. And Mm -hmm. the volume, uh, one of those programs is emergency conservation program. Um, Another one is EWP, which is emergency watershed protection. Um, we have another program that's called EQIP Disaster. EQIP is our general program. It's the Environmental Qualities Incentives Program. That's where we spend the vast majority of our money. But we have a version of that that's specifically for disaster as well. Um, the amount that I have worked on that in my young career is disheartening. Um, in Montana, I regularly worked on ECP contracts that were due to drought. Um, I've helped with fire recovery from forest fires in Montana. Mm -hmm. Uh, I recently helped put together the list of conservation practices that we're going to be using to help people just in the western part of my zone here in Texas recover from forest fires. I just, just to give you a concept of how out of whack things are with the climate currently. Um, Eastland County in Texas and Johnson County in Texas are separated by Erath County in the middle. Counties are not very big in Texas. There's 200 and Mm -hmm. who knows how many. I can't even remember off the top of my head. 250 some in Texas. So they're they're small. Uh, Eastland and Johnson County are separated by roughly one county. I am currently working on watershed protection in Johnson County to repair from floods while working on fire recovery in Eastland County because of drought. Jeez. So I am actively working on recovery from flood events in areas that are in a multi-year drought. Um, the, the biggest thing that 
I notice as a civil engineer that specializes in water resources is storm intensity. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about return intervals, you know, hundred year flood, hundred year rainfall, all that kind of stuff. And there's been a lot of statistically impossible things that have happened in the last couple of decades. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Houston, Texas. And starting with Tropical Storm Allison in 2001, I think Houston's had four 250 to 500 year plus flood events in the last 20 years. Jeez. Which is considerably less time than 250 years. Correct. And I mean, it's just that's that's the nature of it. I mean, it's difficult because. Obviously, with climate, you can't predict what's going to happen day to day. So everything that we design on, mm-hmm. everything that we predict on is based on averages. Right. Well, the average amount of rainfall is not really changing in most places. Now, in the western United States, it is. There's extreme drought in the western United States. But, like, where I'm at in Texas, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, we're roughly a 30-inch rainfall zone. And we get 30 inches of rainfall. But instead of getting it an inch to two inches at a time, we'll get a quarter inch for six, we'll get a quarter inch every now and then for six months, get 12 inches in one rainfall and then not see any rain for a month and get another 10 inches. And it's just, I mean, everybody knows like those big rainfall events, obviously the faster it comes down and the more that comes down in a short amount of time, the more there is in the ditches running off and it's just not infiltrating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can get the same amount of rainfall but soil moisture is way down and it's not in the proper time for crops to grow successfully, or it happens exactly when people need to be harvesting and their crops sit and end Mm -hmm. up, you know, rotting because they can't get into the field or vice versa. They can't plant in the spring because it's too wet. It's just, there's always been weather hardships, but the intensity of storms and just the way in which normal average years just don't seem to happen anymore. The entire country for the most part is either in a drought or a flood event. Yeah. I I feel very similarly. I'm in New York and it seems like the past couple winters, even, you know, we just haven't had snowfall that often and then we'll get one major snow event and you look at our averages and so, you know, we got around the same amount of snow as we did last year, but like you said, it's just one major event and the rest of the winter just doesn't feel like a winter. So yeah, I can only imagine that that's extrapolated out across the whole country and wet areas are going to keep getting wetter. Dry areas are going to keep mm-hmm. getting drier. And uh, I mean, it's, it's difficult because unfortunately there's not a huge trust in science for whatever reason anymore. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's as, as somebody that, works in science and works with an entire agency of wonderful, wonderful people that are trained to know this stuff. It's, it's frustrating that we're at a point where anybody with an opinion is, you know, supposed to have a valid enough opinion about something they're not educated about. And, you know, we go out of our way to not try to tell farmers and ranchers, you know, how to run their equipment because that's not what we do. We do the scientific side of things and Mm -hmm. It's frustrating, and because the averages are all still the same, it's easy to say nothing. It's easy for people to point at it and say nothing's changing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a huge part of the problem, too. Um, even hurricane season is another great example of that. I mean, it, 
you read articles and it's like, well, we're expecting roughly the same number of storms, but they're going to be, you know, 75%, right. 75% hurricanes instead of 10% hurricanes, like more intense. It's just insanity. Yeah. It's, it's definitely frustrating. I mean, my degree is in environmental policy and God, the amount of people who, when they'll come out with, you know, this new global climate agreement or the IPCC releases the latest report and it's, well, that can't be true because it's still cold outside, so it can't be getting warmer every year. That's not how it works. Yeah, and that's—I don't know. I get on a soapbox a lot about politicalization of of science, climate change, and science in general. Yeah, I mean, I, it just—it's infuriating. Yeah. As soon as it became a political issue, you know, there's unfortunately—I mean, it's the same as me trying to talk about a lot of things that I don't know about. It's—it's it's difficult to do it well when you don't know about it. I mean, it, yeah. it's just how it is. Yeah. My general rule of thumb is scientists that are specializing in one specific area probably know a hell of a lot more than I do. So I'm going to go ahead and trust them on their field and hope they trust yeah. me on mine. I mean, even climate scientists, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I work in essentially an environmental field every day and I have an under, undergrad degree mm-hmm. in civil engineering with a minor in environmental studies and then I have a master's degree in water resources, civil engineering with water resources concentration. And like my knowledge of climate science is minuscule. And like everything that we design is based on climate science as a civil engineer. I mean, like mm-hmm. that's the baseline of where we start. We start with a flood event, a rainfall event, or, you know, a snowfall event and go from there. And even compared, even me compared to climate scientists, like I know enough to know I don't know anything. And there's a lot of people that don't know yeah. enough to get to that point that's the dangerous part too when you, when you don't know what you don't know yep <laughs> all right so last question for you what is the nrcs doing to mitigate the risk of climate change or adapt to the challenges that farmers ranchers and just people in general are, are already facing from climate change you know a, a big a big part of what we do unfortunately is reactionary mm-hmm. Like I talked about disaster programs, we try to help people recover from it, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, we help restore infrastructure on farms and ranches and all that thing, all that good stuff. Um, as far as mitigating it, we spend millions of dollars planting farmland back to grassland every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it's a big part of what we do, um, and based on what this land was when we first got here when it was first colonized um that that's a huge difference i mean you, mm-hmm. you, know, you talk about the historical setting of this area of north central texas and it was, it was considered you know tall grass prairie and the grass was literally so thick that it had to be burnt to the ground before it could be plowed you know and just that that volume of transpiration from a plant that's you know co2 to oxygen exchange and carbon Mm -hmm. being sequestered in the ground all that kind of stuff i mean just having grasslands again is a huge part of what we need as a you know a planet and there's a lot of talk of you know planting forests and all this other stuff i mean the bottom line is is, grasslands as far as filtering the air and removing co2 and sequestering carbon grasslands are significantly more effective than forests are Um, and the majority of the united states that has been broken out into 
farmland was grassland at one time. Um, I mean, the East Coast, there's tons of areas of forests that were obviously, you know, cut down, clear cut, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And loss of forests is a huge issue, but people just don't think about the idea of losing grassland because the thought of grass is a yard, right? It's, it's our lawn and it's like, hi, that can't do anything, right? If I don't mm-hmm. cut it for two weeks, it gets like four inches tall. I mean, we're talking about historic grasslands that like, I'm not a very big guy, but the grass is taller than me. Like huge grassland. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as working on farmland itself, a lot of what we're trying to do is increase infiltration, which reduces runoff. And then we're also just, you know, really, really, really trying to work on keeping the soil covered, soil temperatures down, you know, reduce erosion, the healthier our soil is, you know, it, we might not be using it for carbon sequestering at the moment, but the healthier our soil stays, the more of a wonderful natural tool we have in our back pocket. Now, a lot of that comes from cover crops. A huge chunk of what we do mm-hmm. is a push for cover crops and crop rotations. Um, no-till, obviously, is a is a massive, deep, massive thing. Um, grassed waterways are another thing that we do a lot of. Um, I don't know what portion of New York you're in. I'm in the city now. Um, yeah, I grew up an hour north of there yeah. in the suburbs, but yeah, I'm currently a city boy. <laughs> Yeah. So if you're ever, you know, it goes for anybody, if you're ever driving by a field and it's like, wow, that's so weird. They have a strip of grass through the center of their field. That's actually a spot where water is intended to go so that when that water channelizes, it's flowing over covered ground instead of bare soil that it can take away with it. Got it. Call those grass waterways. And that, that was another thing that was well, very, very original to the SCS. That was something that we started a long time ago. Overall, when the soil is covered, it's going to be significantly healthier than when it's not covered. So in those high stress areas, you know, we pay people to shape them into roughly, you know, a ditch that's going to carry water. Ditch is a simplified term. Yeah. It's a, lot, <laughs> a lot more to it than that. But I mean, it's basically just a, you know, a roadside ditch in the middle of a farm field that's covered in grass. Yeah. And it, it prevents soil loss. But the other thing that people don't realize is, you know, so you got your grass growing in this waterway and it takes energy, right? To, mm-hmm. For that water to fold that vegetation down. As that vegetation gets folded down, it slows the water down. But when that water slows down, any particles in it are gonna drop out. So grass waterways are also water filters. They're improving water quality, all that kind of good stuff. Um, so, you know, we're, we're we're doing what we can when it comes down to it ultimately we're public service right mm-hmm. and the, the people that bring us out are the farmers and ranchers so we're doing the most that we can to help the farmers and ranchers while also helping the environment got it all right we end every interview with three fun i hope rapid fire questions ready go first one what's your favorite animal bison awesome number two what is something that you do to be more sustainable in your own life Oh, goodness. I don't water my lawn. <laughs> All right. And number three, what is one environmental topic you think my listeners should be aware of after hearing from you today? Know that agriculture is not the bad guy. Got it. All right, Nick, thank you so much. This was awesome. I learned a lot and I hope the listeners did too. Awesome. I appreciate it, Matt. If people want to keep up with what the NRCS is doing, where would the best place to do that be? 
So let me look up what the official URL is, but you can basically just Google USDA and RCS and we have a website. Um, the website is www.nrcs.usda.gov. All right. We will link that in the show notes too. So if you're listening now, just swipe down or swipe up, whatever it is, and click on that. Check it out. Awesome, man. All right. Talk to you soon, Nick. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good rest of the day. And that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Thank you again to Nick for his time with this one. And make sure to hit the link in your show notes to learn more about the NRCS. Nick Chinusa and I will be back on Friday for some quick hits to get you into your weekend. Until then, make sure to follow along on our socials at Planet Today Pod for clips from the show and an exclusive quick hit that I'm working on every week. For the Planet Today, I'm Matt Norton. See you on Friday.